the notion of the House and Senate convening in this really pretty opulent kind of almost ridiculous looking West Virginia resort in a post-apocalyptic era is truly absurd. Welcome to Foreign Policy. I'm Sharon Weinberger, executive editor for News, and you're listening to The Yar. I'm in Washington today, and I'm joined by journalist Garrett Graff. He's the author of Raven Rock, the story of the U.S. government's secret plan to save itself while the rest of us die, which was released last month. Also joining us here in Washington is Elias Gorl, a staff writer at FP covering cyberspace, the Department of Justice, and the FBI. And calling in from London is Ryan Gallagher, a UK-based investigative journalist for The Intercept, where he focuses on government surveillance, technology, and civil liberties. ER nerds have questions or comments. You can email us at erpodcast at foreignpolicy.com. So we've been talking about Garrett's new book on Raven Rock, and we've been talking about sort of the historical perspective, what presidents had done over time, what the institutions had done over time to ensure continuity of government operations. But you start the book with this great description of Nixon in Air Force One, on, on basically with the transition of power. He's resigning. He's sipping his martini. And it's sort of the transfer of power and the transfer of this plan for continuity of operations. You talked about last time, and that's one of the first things a new president does, that they learn about these secret procedures. Um, what do you think Donald Trump's reaction was? So Donald Trump said that he found it very sobering um, to to learn about this. I mean, he has historically had made some weird comments about nuclear weapons and uh, Weird, how so? <laughs> uh, well, he he has been uh, pretty hawkish in his comments. Um, I mean, sort of a, things along the lines of, well, why would we have these weapons if we are not going to use them uh, kind of things. Uh, and, and it's worth noting, of course, that the mother of all bombs uh, that was dropped on Taliban complex in Afghanistan early in his presidency, uh, it, it's a conventional weapon for sure, but sort of size-wise, force-wise, it's effectively the size of the bombs that we dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. I mean, it's a it was a massive bomb. And that Donald Trump seems much more free in using weapons of that size than any president that we have seen thus far. But what from what we know, Donald Trump has said that he has found these uh, briefings since the election sobering, uh, and we have seen less nuclear saber rattling from him as president than we did on the campaign trail. Yeah, but what's striking is you talk about in the book, for instance, President Kennedy, because again, very rich family. They had their own sort of vacation compounds. And so they actually had to adapt to him building facilities in Florida near where he was vacationing. Do you think that they're doing things to, I mean, Trump is going back and forth to Mar-a-Lago. Do you think accommodations are being made to fortify something near there at there? I'm sure that there are. And actually, as you mentioned, John F. Kennedy's presidential vacation bunker on Peanut Island in Palm Beach, which is now open as a tourist attraction, uh, is actually not that far from Mar-a-Lago. It's just across the bay. It is not a place one would ever actually want to spend nuclear uh, nuclear war. Uh, it's a buried Quonset hut under some sand dunes on an island in, in the bay there. But the presidents all get this massive complex uh, and constellation of sort of continuity of government vehicles and plans and procedures that surround them. I mean, we we forget that uh, effectively all of the shiny 
toys that we associate with a modern, majestic imperial presidency are really just communications apparatus that allow him to launch nuclear war from wherever he is. Um, you know, Air Force One, Marine One, the armored motorcades are, are all necessary because of the communications capabilities built into them that allow the president to stay in touch with nuclear command wherever he is. That's interesting. Uh, one of the agencies you don't talk as much about in the book, probably because it is so secretive, is the National Security Agency. Ryan, I, I know from the the newsletters that The Intercept has been publishing, there are references to the NSA's continuity plans. Do you recall anything about them, about what their plans are after nuclear war or during? Well, I mean, I, I think the specifics on those kind of details are really classified at the highest level and mostly above top secret. But certainly from the Snowden Archive more generally, um, what I have seen is that they take very seriously, obviously, the the, the, the not the risk, not just of um, a nuclear attack, but just attack generally. And that they have plans, for example, where they're, they have their like their entire um, their controls for their entire sort of global surveillance apparatus in hidden places, so that if one you know their 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 publicly known headquarters, for example, is somehow wiped out, that that doesn't um, nullify their capability because they have a secret control center somewhere else, for example, um, and that's true of most. Of the uh, the Five Eyes agencies, they have they like in the UK, for example, GCHQ, the the NSA equivalent here. They they have a similar setup, so that if they were to come under some kind of attack and their main headquarters were damaged somehow, that they would still be okay and that they would be able to just relocate somewhere else and still carry on. Oh, that's wonderful. So we'll all be dead, but the National Security Agency will live on in perpetuity. Yeah, yeah. yeah. and that's been a, a big shift in these plans since both 9-11 uh, and then actually also an incident a little bit before then, which uh, some listeners might remember, the doomsday cult in Tokyo that launched a sarin gas attack uh, against the Tokyo subways and, and sort of slightly messed up the attack. And so it killed a, a large number but not the tens of thousands that it could have killed if it was actually successful. And that incident and 9-11 changed some of the way that the government, both in the UK and the US, have thought about this with a much more of a focus on devolution of control and devolution of command to pre-existing alternate facilities with the idea that, you know, a rogue state or a terror group, you know, a North Korea or an Iran is more likely to just launch a random surprise attack on a Tuesday morning like Al-Qaeda did. And so you may not have even the the chance to run through your evacuation procedures before something happened. And so there was, um, Ryan, and you'll have to forgive me, I might have even read this in an intercept story, but there there was one particular scare in the early 2000s dealing with a threat of a WMD attack by al-Qaeda in Washington where the NSA, Michael Hayden was in charge at the, t at the time, uh, basically set up a procedure where the NSA would be handed off to GCHQ in the UK if the NSA was destroyed. Yeah, I, I recall that one. That that's true, and that illustrates also the the extremely close um, collaboration, of course, between the U.S. and the and the U.K. But I think also it, it works both ways that if that were to happen here 
um, in the UK that the UK's capability would be entrusted to to the US. But yeah, that that is quite and that was a fascinating <laughs> document. I remember that one. That is fascinating. I mean, one of the things with nine eleven is is the culture. It sort of revived this cultural interest in Armageddon scenarios with things like The Walking Dead and zombies that we're seeing now years later. Uh, Elias, to, to kind of date you, you're a bit younger than me. I mean, I grew up with things like war games and the idea of extermination. <laughs> I mean, you're the first person sort of of your generation that I've heard talk yeah. about fears of I'm part of the 9-11 generation, right? Well, right. Some so some, when you think about Doomsday, described. do you think about nuclear weapons or zombies or environmental collapse under Donald Trump? I mean, yes, for me, you know, notions of apocalypse definitely, nuclear weapons are, are, are front and center. Um, that might be, have something to do with my, you know, particular interests. But this is the thing also about the Trump era, where you saw him on the campaign trail talk about nuclear weapons in a way that we've never really heard a presidential candidate talked about. He evinced this almost childlike curiosity towards them and a kind of belligerence about their use that was that was really astounding. And, you know, we talked a little bit last time around about the problem of actually imagining the destructive force of a nuclear weapon, of what that actually does. And when you try to think through what that would do to a city like Washington, for example, you can go online and uh, you can um, sort of select from a drop-down table uh, nuclear weapons of the world, then decide where on a map they're going to detonate. And then you have these really nicely uh, color-coded circles placed on a Google map that will tell you the degree of destruction, the fallout, the number of casualties. So you can really start to get pretty, pretty concrete about these things. But you still have to really imagine what it would look like. And taking that leap is is very hard. Well, you talk about the transformation of some of the institutions, like the post office. Um, I think if I remember right, under Barack Obama, it's going to be involved in sending out sort of you know vaccines mm -hmm. against biological agents, which sort of amazes me considering the state of the post office today. Um, can you talk a little about the transformation of continuity of government operations after 9-11? Yeah. So Every government agency in the government department has sort of a post-apocalypse version of itself. So uh, during the Cold War, the post office was going to be the agency that was in charge of registering the dead and figuring out who was still alive because the post office is the agency that knows where people live. And the you know, U.S. Department of Agriculture would have been the agency that would have – helped to deliver food and figure out rations and sort through food stockpiles. The Park Service would have been the agency that ran the refugee camps for the devastated urban centers because the thinking was Park Service land would likely not be targeted during an attack. What about the IRS? Well, and then, of course, <laughs> you know, not even the IRS is uh, exempt. And uh, so nuclear war does not stop the need for taxes. <sighs> And so the IRS came up with all of its own plans for how they would levy taxes on nuclear damaged property and sort of raise revenue for the country. Um, but then all of these plans have modern analogs, you know, and have been sort of updated as the country's needs change. So as you mentioned, the post office has been designated now the distributor for medical countermeasures uh, in the event of a public health pandemic or a biological or chemical attack. 
And so the post office has all of these procedures about how, you know, if there's an Ebola outbreak or a chemical or biological attack, you know, normal uh, mail delivery would cease for a period of time and the post office would go out uh, and postmen and postwomen would be, you know, delivering those vaccines or medical antidotes to homes across the country. Because again, the post office is the one agency in the country that can knock on every door in the country in a single day. Um, which I sort of like to say is something that you definitely want to consider the next time you are calculating the tip you're going to leave for the holidays uh, for your postman, that you definitely want to be one of the early people to get the <laughs> Ebola vaccine in your neighborhood. I wish to sign up, yes. <laughs> the amazing thing about these, especially the the sort of the hidden bunkers and shelters, is they sort of um, – they the secrecy that that surrounded them, as you point out, it also protected a lot of waste in some cases. Um, you detailed the history of the Greenbrier, which was the where Congress would go in the event of nuclear war, and I think that also involved at one point taking trains there. Mm-hmm. Um, what should that have survived? I think it was you talk about Ted Gupp from the Washington Post exposed yep. it in the early 1990s, but it was probably useless long before then. Why did it go on so long? And can you talk about what the Greenbrier is? Yeah, so the Greenbrier is the uh, this luxury resort and golf course in White Sulphur Springs, West Virginia, that beginning in the 1950s would have housed this very elaborate bunker hidden under the resort for the both the House and the Senate, and it it was this uh, very interesting bunker that was it's open to the public now, and if. Any of the listeners are close to West Virginia at some point. It's worth stopping by and taking the tour because it was this resort conference facility that was actually a bunker um, sort of hidden in plain sight. And so there was one room that had about 100 seats in it where the House could – or sorry, where the Senate would have sat and then a different room next door that – held about 435 seats where the House would have sat. And, you know, for decades during the Cold War, uh, conference goers and trade associations and professional associations came through and held their conferences in these facilities, not realizing that sort of the reason that they had to walk a ways down into this mountain in order to get to these rooms was there were hidden blast doors behind the walls that would have swung closed and sealed in Congress into this mountain. I'll urge any of our listeners who are in front of a computer right now, if you don't know what the Green Fire looks like, to Google image search it right now because it's truly an incredible structure. And the notion of the House and Senate convening in this really pretty opulent kind of almost ridiculous looking West Virginia resort in a post-apocalyptic era is truly absurd. And what was also fascinating is, you know, the level of preparations that went into all of this. So, you know, when members of Congress were elected, uh, they would give their eyeglass prescriptions to uh, (laughs) the sergeant at arms who would make sure that in the bed assigned to that member of Congress in the Greenbrier bunker, there were spare sets of eyeglasses for them. Uh, and you know, could they take their families? So they originally could not take their families, and then uh, they received a enough criticism of that policy that they actually did make allowances for families to stay outside of the bunker. 
Uh, so you wouldn't oh, be you wouldn't be fully protected, but you would at least be close by. Uh, it, well, they'd be it, in the hotel, right? They'd be, it's a they'd lovely be in, hotel. Exactly. They would yeah. be in the hotel and sort of in some of the hotel's other uh, non-bunkerized conference facilities, uh, whereas the staff would get to go inside of the bunker itself. That is wonderful. And so what happened to the Greenbrier? Uh, so uh, as you mentioned, the Greenbrier was – Unveiled by Ted Gupp, a Washington Post reporter, actually 25 years ago uh, this spring. And it was probably, uh, we don't know for sure, uh, probably outed basically because of a tussle uh, internally as to whether the bunker should be kept going uh, after the Cold War was over. And that was sort of true with a lot of these facilities, that they sh- they were uh, sort of leaked into the public view as the Cold War ended. And many of them were mothballed or shut down entirely. Some of them, the Greenbrier uh, or Peanut Island, as, as I mentioned, are now tourist attractions. Uh, but many of these other facilities have been – you know, updated and expanded since 9-11. Um, Raven Rock, the title of my book, which was the alternate Pentagon in Pennsylvania, has been dramatically expanded and dramatically rebuilt uh, since 9-11. And actually, like right now, this week, as we are sitting here taping, uh, CenturyLink is digging big holes through downtown Waynesboro, Pennsylvania, to bury new telecommunications cables uh, up into Raven Rock as part of a communications upgrade. What is driving that? I mean, what is it in our you know realm of national security that's driving them to do this? Uh, well, some of it is you know just the threats that we have seen from terror groups and and rogue states. Um, NORAD, the bunker in Cheyenne Mountain in Colorado Springs, had been actually shut down in the early two thousands. And has been reopened and is being updated right now to deal with cyber attacks and uh, the idea that uh, it's one of the few EMP-hardened facilities, uh, the electromagnetic pulse that would come with a high-altitude nuclear blast that would be uh, that would wipe out and fry electronics over hundreds or thousands of miles. It's one of the few EMP-hardened facilities we have, and so it's being re-updated uh, and reopened and restaffed right now. Um, but then also, it, some of this is is true just because all of these nuclear weapons are still out there. You know, the as we are sitting here taping this in Washington, one of the president's doomsday planes, these uh, converted 747s known as the night watch planes, are – it is sitting on a runway in Omaha, Nebraska off at Air Force Base. Its engines are on and it is fully staffed with everyone that you would need to lead a nuclear war and could launch on 15 minutes notice and rendezvous with the president wherever he ends up being. So, well, a question. So what is – if the Greenbrier is no longer a congressional bunker, which it isn't, what is con- what is the plan for Congress now so in the, case of nuclear war? Yeah. So Congress has a number of backup facilities, some of which were built and created after the anthrax attacks on Capitol Hill uh, when the congressional office buildings were, were contaminated and Congress thought that it was going to need to move from Capitol Hill. Um, Con- congressional continuity, though, is a very interesting and and known problem, which is Congress has no ability to reconstitute itself 
if a large number of its members are incapacitated or killed uh, in any sort of short or reasonable length of time. And effectively, what would end up happening is you would just have special elections all across the country for anyone who was killed. And there's no good uh, easy way for Congress to to replace incapacitated members. So if someone is uh, injured or uh, in a coma, Congress has almost no real quick way to replace those members. So in nuclear Armageddon, we're just having constant elections all the time? Uh, constant <laughs> elections. It, well, and, and Congress itself would just be sidelined for four or five months at a time. Which until, leaves the executive branch. Yeah. So what – I mean what's amazing for me is there's very little mention of – Courts, right? Or yes. I, and, very and little. Very little mention. And, and again, it's partially a recognition by the courts of how slow their process is. That you know, the Supreme Court is normally operating on months or years timelines for things to make it up to the Supreme Court. And you know, in the hours and weeks that matter, uh, we would almost entirely just be relying on sort of a dictatorial presidency. Uh, oh, that's comforting. Decide. Exactly. And what's even weirder about this, though, is there are – so there's a level of these plans, you know, as, as Ryan has mentioned, that are still exist today that are top secret beyond almost anything else in government. Um, you know, they're known as enduring constitutional government and it's the plans for how the three branches of government would work together. And certainly some level of that plan needs to be – uh, needs to be secret. You know the exact tactical procedures for who would be evacuated where, and what communications capabilities exist at what facilities. But there are huge, obvious problems that we know with these plans that exist, just sort of lying out there in plain sight, um, including with the Twenty Fifth Amendment, which is the constitutional amendment that deals with uh, with presidential succession. The, tw- the 25th Amendment actually doesn't make clear whether it is legal and constitutional for the Speaker of the House or the President pro tem of the Senate to become President of the United States. And we know that. And that is an active constitutional debate among constitutional scholars uh, and no less an, an authority on the Constitution than James Madison argued that no one from the legislative branch could lead the executive branch. And so we all remember the sort of the the mockery that was made of Al Haig, uh, Reagan's <laughs> secretary of state, when he declared during that assassination attempt, I am in control here in the White House. Well, he actually has a valid constitutional point. And so it is actually pretty easy to imagine a scenario where if something happens to the president and vice president, uh, Rex Tillerson and Paul Ryan can both claim to be the legitimate president of the United States and the decision of who to listen to uh, would effectively fall to the 35-year-old army captain who answers the phone <laughs> at the Pentagon or at Raven Rock, the alternate National Military Command Center. Uh, and you know you can sort of imagine him with Rex in one ear and Paul in the other. Uh, both of them saying, I'm I'm the president and listen to me. So we've basically – nuclear war hits. We have maybe President Tillerson, uh, the Liberty Bell because that's saved and the Declaration of Independence because that's prioritized over the Constitution as you told us last time. Exactly. 
And that's our government. Yeah. That is very comforting. Well, this has been a great discussion and a great topic. It's a wonderful book. I highly recommend that everyone go out and get it now. You'll learn a lot about how our institutions may function after nuclear war. So thank you for tuning in. And please tune in next time for our next episode of the ER. You've been listening to Foreign Policy's The ER Podcast. I'm Sharon Weinberger, and I've been your host. The program is produced by Maria Ori. For more information about FP and to subscribe to The ER and our Global Thinkers and Backstory podcasts, please visit foreignpolicy.com, iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you very much for joining us.